Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for June 9th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Thanks to those of you who pledged during our recent KZYX Spring Pledge Drive. Unfortunately, we didn't receive the minimum amount needed to keep our community radio station thriving, so please do consider pledging your financial support, which you can do during working hours by phoning 707-895-2324 or anytime via the kzyx.org website. Now, on with the show. Our guest today Today on Forthright Radio is Brendan Ballou, whose book Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, was just published by Public Affairs Books. Brendan Ballou is a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Previously, he worked in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counter terrorism and other policies. He's clear in stating that, quote, the views expressed in this book do not necessarily represent those of the U.S. Department of Justice, end of the quote. He pulls no punches in characterizing what private equity firms are doing as plunder and a plan to pillage America. After interviewing numerous indigenous authors over the years with their sustainable wisdom of decisions being made with consistency consideration of the impact down to the seventh generation, one finds it especially painful to examine how these oligarchs of private equity have as their business model to plunder assets and destroy existing companies into bankruptcy in a few years' time, regardless of the harm caused to individuals, communities, local, state, the nation, or our world. We spoke with Brendan Ballou via Skype on June 2nd, 2023, from his office in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Brendan Ballou. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Brendan, you chose a very forthright title for your book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And among the reasons for the increasing anger that so many Americans have all along the political spectrum is the sense that things are deeply wrong with the ways that business is being done, laws are being created and enforced, and how the courts are adjudicating matters. We tend to be bewildered by the specifics, but we feel in our guts that things haven't been right for a long time, and they're worsening really quickly. Your book takes a close look at one aspect of this, private equity, and it does the great service of investigating, analyzing, offering examples of the harms being done, and especially offering ways to reform the systems that have allowed us to get to this point. But to most of us, private equity is a nebulous term. At best, it just seems like a new twist on an old story, but it's more than that. Let's begin our conversation with explaining just what 
is private equity? It's a great question, and I confess it's one that I didn't know the answer to until I was about a third of the way through this project. So nobody should feel bad for not knowing exactly what private equity is. And I should say, of course, that I'm speaking in a personal capacity, and my views don't necessarily reflect those of my employer and the government. So what is private equity? Private equity firms use a little bit of their own money, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. They then make financial and operational changes with the goal of selling them for a profit just a few years later. So it's a really simple idea, but it often has very bad consequences. The challenge that we have with the business model, private equity firms often invest for the short term. You know, they buy companies with the intention of selling them three or five or seven years later. They often load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. And they tend to insulate themselves from liability. So it's very hard to sue a private equity firm for the action of their portfolio companies. And together, what those three things mean is with a short-term perspective, a lot of debt involved, and insulation from responsibility, it means that a lot of companies that they buy suffer, as do their employees and their customers. You give example after example, each one more shocking than the one before. The business model seems to not take into account any of the potential harm that's being done to the companies they're buying or the communities that are served or even the nation as a whole. One of the common features is the lease back. Would you explain that? And don't just give the elevator version. Actually (laughs) go into what this involves. And it's not just one company doing it. The lease back tactic is one way that private equity firms can make money quickly from a company they buy. I'll give the example of Shopco, which was a regional retailer in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest and it was sort of one step above Walmart and one step below Target. It was it was great. A private equity firm bought up Shopco, I believe in 2007, and then executed what's called a sale leaseback, where what they did is they required Shopco to sell all of the underlying real estate that it owned. So, you know, it owned the physical stores where it was located. Shopco had to sell those and then lease them back to themselves. And so what that meant is Shopco made a quick buck on the sale, but now it was saddled with an unending obligation to pay these leases. They were locked into these 15 to 20 year contracts that weren't very flexible if, for instance, you want to close a store or something like that. It's a way for a private equity firm to make money fast, but it means that the company itself no longer has assets that it can rely on, that it can borrow against in hard times, and now it has this new cost that's just going to exist forever. And as you suggested in the question, this is not a tactic that's a one-off. It's very standard for many private equity deals, and often it has bad consequences because the company no longer has these assets that it can borrow against. And in fact, to go back to my original example, Shopco ultimately went into bankruptcy and with some very small exceptions, no longer even operates. It's worse than even that because Shopco didn't have to pay rent before because they owned their property. They did have to pay taxes. Under many of these agreements, not only are they paying rent, but the contracts specify that they also pay taxes. Do I have that right? 
they might not necessarily pay property taxes because they don't own it, but the company still has various taxes that it's going to have to pay, sales tax, income tax, and so forth. I think what's really interesting in the Shopco example and others is that this is a responsibility that the company has to take on. But if the company fails, and here I'm a lawyer, so I always have to say there are exceptions to this, but generally if the company fails, it's going to be very hard for the creditors or for the government to claw back money from the private equity firm. So you know, I'm speaking more generally than just about Shopco, but just in general, if a private equity-owned business goes bankrupt and it owes money, despite the fact that the private equity firm may have extracted a lot of fees from that company, transaction fees, management fees, and so forth, it's going to be very hard for creditors, whether it's other businesses, employees, the government, and so forth, to ultimately get that money back from the private equity firm. Brendan, let's go into a little bit deeper. This is part of the business model that the private equity firms insulate themselves by various methods from the base company that's getting sued or goes bankrupt. Explain how this is done. Sure. So I'll use the example of Carlisle's purchase of HCR Manor Care. Carlisle's is one of the largest private equity firms in the country. HCR Manor Care was once the second largest nursing home chain in America. And Carlisle bought up HCR Manor Care and then executed many of the tactics that we've been talking about, including a sale leaseback. Ultimately, they cut staffing, health code violations spiked, residents complained, and at least one resident died when she had to go to the bathroom unattended and hit her head on a bathroom fixture. When her family sued Carlisle for wrongful death, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed. And it made this very interesting sort of clever argument where they said, we are not technically the owners of the nursing home chain. Rather, we merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through several shell companies ultimately owns the nursing home chain. That's called the doctrine of corporate veil piercing. And what it meant was Carlisle was actually able to get the case against it dismissed. And the family was ultimately never able to hold the private equity firm responsible for its alleged actions. To put this in perspective, you write, Brendan Ballou, that HCR Manor Care, which Carlisle bought in 2007 for $6.1 billion, of which it had borrowed $4.8 billion. So it actually put in very little of its own money as a percentage of it. That bought them 15,000 nursing homes with 1.3 million residents. They immediately sold the Manor Care real estate for $6 billion. So they got the money they borrowed back really fast. And then, of course, Manor Care had to rent those same facilities plus pay for the upkeep, the taxes and insurance, etc. And they then charged $61 million in transaction fees and $27 million over nine years in advisory fees. So they're getting all this money, but none of the liability. Now, to me, this is just not fair. <laughs> To put it very simply, and this is one of the reasons I found the book as rage-inducing as it is, and as you just pointed out, the courts rule in their favor. You know, I think it's an area where the law just hasn't caught up with the reality of how businesses work. I alluded to this in the last question. We have this thing called doctrine of corporate veil piercing, and the idea is that generally investors can't be held responsible for 
the companies that they invest in. And, and that makes sense for mom and pop investors. If you're invested in 500 different companies through an index fund and you've got one share of each company, it doesn't really make sense for somebody to sue you because you don't really have much say over what those companies do. What's changed is the private equity firm, though, quote unquote, mere investor, often has majority control over the company and can effectively dictate its operations, either saying what should be done or by choosing the board of directors or the company's leadership. And yet they are often afforded the same insulation from liability, despite the fact that they have control over these businesses. So it is an area where I think private equity firms often win in court cases. And I'm hopeful that it's an area where judges and practitioners see how the law needs to evolve to catch up with what's going on here. Among other things, they did require severe staffing reductions in manor care, which directly contributed to lack of cleanliness, lack of personal attention for the people that live there. The private equities are, I'm not sure if I can legally say responsible, but during the time that they owned this, there were more than 20,000 premature deaths over 12 years, and that's apparently not including COVID. And because the conditions were so bad, in addition to reducing the number of staff members, the turnover went from 128% to 300%. The study that you mentioned, the 20,000 premature deaths, that's a really interesting one conducted by researchers over at NYU, Penn, and Chicago, I believe, that found that private equity ownership of nursing homes sort of across the country over a 12 or 15-year period was responsible for an estimated over 20,000 premature deaths. The idea being that whatever changes private equity firms are making at these nursing homes is ultimately affecting resident or patient safety. And I think it goes back to the legal issue that we're talking about, which is typically private equity firms and other kinds of investors are able to insulate themselves from legal liability if something goes wrong. One of the interesting stories that I discovered in the process of researching this book, I talked with lawyers that represent residents in nursing homes and their families, and they were saying, look, oftentimes it's just hard to figure out who even owns the nursing home chain because private equity firms and others rarely advertise themselves as the owner of a particular business. And in fact, There's really interesting reporting about how oftentimes nursing homes, once purchased, will be sort of restructured across several different shell companies. So it can be hard for a family, for a plaintiff, for a lawyer to figure out even where the assets are or whether they can recover if there is, in fact, an injury at the nursing home or a wrongful death. And all through your book, you talk of various ways in which the various private equity companies have created liaisons, shall we say politely, with Congress, with the incredible number of lobbyists that way outnumber members of Congress to create legal avenues for them to do these sorts of things. At the end of each of your chapters, you suggest things that can be done either at the state or local level or at the federal level. What are some of the suggestions for some of the issues that we've just discussed with nursing home care? 
Nursing homes are really interesting. There's obviously things that Congress can do to act here, but we're living in a period of divided government, and historically it's been very hard to pass legislation on private equity specifically. I do think that there's a lot that can be done through federal regulators and also, as you suggested, at the state and local level. So taking each of these in turn, at the federal level, the Department of Health and Human Services is actually already moving forward on really important rulemaking that will, for instance, establish minimum national staffing criteria for residents saying that for every resident that you have in a nursing home, you need to have a certain number of hours of care per day by nursing staff. So that's one thing that can happen. Another is increasing the transparency of the industry overall. You know, to go back to what we were just talking about, often it's hard to figure out who even owns the nursing home and ultimately who should be held responsible. So there's interesting rulemaking going on there to increase transparency around ownership. A lot of things can happen at the state and local level, too, on minimum staffing, on transparency, on rescinding some of the COVID liability shields that were passed in 2020 that essentially insulated nursing homes from responsibility for people who died in their facilities, often not just from COVID, but just across the board. I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish here or overly optimistic, but I think that there are a lot of different levers that people can pull to try to make progress on this issue. We've talked about basically elderly or disabled care in the nursing home cares, but there's health care in general in which the private equity firms have taken over a shocking amount in a very short while. And it occurs to me that doctors in particular used to seem to be an untouchable group. They were very powerful as individuals and as collectively in associations. And that really seems to be less so now. Uh, That became evident after the Dobbs decision. A lot of medical professionals are running scared just around those issues. But in your book, Brendan Ballou, you talk about how the private equity firms have taken over health care. Would you explain to our listeners some of the ways they've done that? PE firms have really gotten active across the sort of healthcare industry. I'll just give a couple of examples. One of the most prominent is what are called emergency staffing facilities. So, If you go to the emergency room and are seen by a doctor, often that doctor doesn't work for the hospital, but rather works for one of these staffing facilities. And it turns out that in part, the business of the staff of these staffing companies is to sort of shuffle where doctors work so that it increases the odds that you're going to have to pay an out-of-network bill, even if you go to an in-network hospital. Both of the leading physician staffing companies are owned by private equity firms right now, and they lobbied very aggressively to first try to stop and then more successfully to limit the scope of surprise medical billing legislation over the past few years. So that's one area. Another really interesting area is ambulances. I think for younger people, it's a surprise to learn that ambulances used to be a publicly owned utility, that they were owned by the fire department or the city or what have you. As pretty much everybody knows now, ambulances are an increasingly privatized service and one that can be debilitatingly expensive for people. Many of the leading ambulance companies are now owned by private equity firms. There's really interesting research that was done by the New York Times back in 2016 about how a disproportionate number of these companies went bankrupt under private equity ownership. 
those are two examples. I'll give just one last one. PE firms are also buying up individual clinics. So whether it's OBGYN clinics, dermatology, anesthesiology, urgent care clinics, and so forth, often rolling them up into larger networks. This has, according to various public reporting, had negative effects for customers, for patients, but it's also had negative effects for doctors. I was reading about complaints There's really interesting reporting going on about this in Bloomberg about private equity acquisitions of dermatology clinics. The private equity owners were essentially dictating operational decisions like which sorts of needles to buy, buying needles that were so cheap that they would actually break off in people's arms. And at the same time, pressuring doctors in sort of these punishing work schedules to such an extent that oftentimes now, if you go to a website that's posting jobs for doctors, the job postings will literally say that this is not a private equity owned clinic or facility. So word is really getting out among doctors about the kinds of pressures that they can face when working for PE. You mentioned very briefly the whole roll-up thing. Basically, that to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, seems to be the old trick of buying up competition and then being able to charge what you want, limit services as you wish, and you've got captive audiences, so too bad. And that brings up the whole antitrust stuff. Private equity firms often engage in what are called roll-up strategies. So as you suggested, this is buying up several businesses that may potentially compete with each other, rolling them up into a single operation, and then potentially getting some efficiency to scale, being able to buy in bulk or use the same back office systems and so forth, but also potentially being able to exercise more market power. If there are fewer competitors, a business can sometimes raise prices or decrease quality of care. It's really interesting to see the breadth of industries where private equity firms are engaged in roll-ups. It can be anything from healthcare roll-ups of OBGYN or anesthesiology clinics to church nonprofit software, board games, portable toilets, that pretty much every aspect of your life in retail is often getting bought up by private equity firms. So it's a sort of ubiquitous trend that's happening across the economy. Yeah, but let's get back to the Sherman Antitrust Act and the changes that went down. Now, older listeners will remember Robert Bork. I certainly do. He was able to pull a slate of hand, I guess, at the end of the 70s, early 80s by saying, oh, it doesn't really matter if they buy up all the competition. What really matters is whether consumer prices go up. Do I have that right or am I misquoting him? No, no, I think that's a fair assessment. So just to set a baseline here, I'm sure many of your listeners, as you said, are already familiar with Robert Bork. He was an academic at Yale who ultimately served in the Nixon administration, and he wrote this enormously influential book called The Antitrust Paradox, which promised to simplify antitrust law and allow judges to do this sort of easy economic analysis to figure out when mergers or agreements between companies would be illegal or anti-competitive. Ultimately, the net effect of this was to dramatically narrow the scope of antitrust law and limit the number of kinds of actions that it would prohibit. And that played out in various changes, such as revisions to our merger guidelines, which is this really important document that talks about how the government will stop certain kinds of acquisitions. So I think Bork has had an enormously influential legacy in narrowing the scope of our antitrust laws 
And that's redounded to the benefit of lots of big companies, but especially private equity firms. You know, when you look at the size of these private equity firms and the breadth of things that they're invested in, some of these firms are approaching a trillion dollars in assets under management. And in many ways, they're sort of recreating the trusts of the 19th century where you have essentially financial entities having effective operational control over disparate businesses across the country. And we're not just talking about American investors. We're talking about Saudi investors, Russian investors, Chinese investors who do not necessarily have democracy as one of their priorities, shall we say. I was concerned by your writing about these man programs in economics for judges and the impact that that has had. Share with our listeners what these man programs are. When did they start and how have they evolved to the present? That's a story that's broader than private equity, but it's obviously important. So Robert Bork had important ideas, but he also had a lot of support, financial support from people that whose interests were aligned with his. The man lecture series would bring in practitioners or academics to talk about their vision of antitrust law and invite federal judges to these weekend long trainings on economics, the Borkian view of antitrust law. I don't want to misquote this, but at, at a certain point, an enormous percentage of federal judges, I believe in the 80s and 90s, went to the Mann Lecture Series. It might have been even like a fifth of all judges, maybe even a third at one point attended one of these things. And ultimately, it was really interesting. There were various exposés saying that the companies that were funding the Mann Lecture Series often had business in front of the judges that attended them. Now, I don't think that constitutes an explicit quid pro quo or anything like that, but it does suggest that the Lecture Series was very effective in presenting that ideology to a large part of the judiciary in the 80s and 90s. And I think it has gone on because as these financial entities become more and more complex, it is more and more difficult for the judiciary to figure out what the heck's going on. And so as a result of the post-Borkian approach to these things, You said there were three results. It raised the thresholds for what is allowed in terms of concentration of businesses. It put judges in impossible positions to try to figure out what's going on. And it forced the judges to rely on economists in trials to try to parse what was going on. The private equity firms and other investment firms have the money to pay for these people, whereas the lowly person whose mother's head got hit in a nursing home does not have those kind of resources. So the trial deck was already stacked against the little person, but it has become increasingly stacked against the normal person as these entities become more and more complex and more adept at shielding themselves from disclosures. Antitrust laws specifically, you mentioned this, it's a really interesting thing. Bork and others promised that through their 
sort of intellectual revolution, antitrust interpretation and law would become simpler. I think most practitioners would say that the opposite was true. As you said, there was sort of an increased reliance on economists and really sophisticated models for figuring out product and geographic markets and so forth. So there was sort of this promise of simplification, and then the opposite happened. And I think what you're suggesting here is ultimately that tends to benefit the parties with the deepest pockets because they're the ones that can hire the most sophisticated economic analysis and so forth. I think one of the interesting things that's going on here is there is sort of a broad movement going on to rethink what the purpose of the antitrust laws are and how we interpret them and really trying to take back some of antitrust law away from this technical interpretation and economics and a little bit closer towards what it might have been a generation or two ago, which is a little bit more democratic in the small d sense of the word and a little bit more reliant on the ordinary work that lawyers and judges are actually trained to do. As you point out in your book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, Brendan Ballou, the financialization of our economy just increases and increases and increases, despite the near blowout of the world economy in 2008. And ineffective is the kindest way I can put it, attempts by Congress to see that that doesn't happen again. Meanwhile, private credit has less oversight. It shrinks the public market. For example, the stock exchange. In 1996, you write on the United States stock exchange, there were 7,400 companies listed. Now in 2018, there were fewer than half that number. And the oversight is less because the oversight is based on a different model of corporation. You do have some thoughts on how to ameliorate that. Please share some of those. Yeah. So and just to set a baseline here, normally when a company, a big company needs to borrow money, historically, they have turned to the public markets, which means that you can broadly solicit offers for investment. And in exchange, you make certain commitments to transparency. You'll file annual and quarterly stock statements with the SEC and so forth. Private credit is an alternative to that, which nominally means that you aren't allowed to make these broad solicitations, but you can target pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, sophisticated investors, and so forth. And in return, you don't need to say as much about your company and its health and so forth. As you suggested, the private credit market is continuing to grow and is in some ways eclipsing the public market. I believe just in terms of a volume basis, it's bigger at this point. And as you said, the number of public companies is really declining as companies increasingly rely on private credit. Private credit is also an area where private equity firms have gotten increasingly active as they've sort of expanded beyond the traditional business of buying and selling companies and increasingly are lending to companies as well. That is not necessarily a problem, but the challenge that we've got is as more money goes into a less regulated, less transparent industry, there is obviously the increased risk for a bubble or some sort of crisis. And in fact, there's really interesting reporting about how potentially people are relying on less reputable ratings agencies and so forth in the private credit market than they do in the public market. 
I can't claim to be an expert on that area. You know, that's really an area for a financial analyst, not for a lawyer like myself. But it's very interesting that in many ways, I think private equity firms, institutions that maybe your listeners haven't heard of, like Blackstone, KKR, Carlisle, and so forth, are in many ways replacing the investment banks that your listeners probably have heard of, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and so forth. That also brings up the revolving door. Now, our listeners have heard about the revolving door in a lot of different ways, like people leave Congress, join the military industrial complex, that sort of thing. But the financial industry, and in particular, the private equity firms have really, really embraced, shall we say, the revolving door. Share with our listeners some examples of that. It's really interesting. I think private equity firms have been enormously successful in recruiting a bench of talent from the government. Private equity firms do or have employed multiple secretaries of treasury, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, a vice president, two former speakers of the House, many senators and congresspeople, chairman of the FCC, SEC, and others. And I think that that sort of access has really served them well. You look at private equity firms' success in, for instance, protecting the carried interest loophole, which is a a tax benefit that allows private equity executives often to pay lower effective tax rates than you or I do. Or, as we mentioned earlier, protecting surprise medical billing, or at least sort of limiting the extent of various reforms. So I think Private equity firms have an almost unrivaled sort of bench of former government folks that are now advocating on their behalf. The first time I ever heard the Carlyle Group mentioned, it was in reference to George H.W. Bush becoming part of their family of, I don't know if employees would be the right, but he was associated with them very soon after leaving office, as was James Baker, his secretary of state, I guess, at that point he was. He's had numerous roles. The other direction is that people from private equity and related fields become part of the government. Eugene Scalia, Jay Clayton, etc., etc., Timothy Geithner. I mean, these names should be familiar to people. And they definitely affect how laws are made and how they're enforced. I can talk about Eugene Scalia and Jay Clayton. If, I should say... Tim Geithner, President Obama's former Treasury Secretary, I believe had been a career government employee, but ultimately went on to become one of the leaders of the private equity firm Warburg Pincus. Clayton and Scalia were two lawyers. Scalia had represented large companies at major defense side law firm. Clayton was sort of a deal maker on behalf of private equity and other firms. Scalia, the son of the former Supreme Court justice, went on to run the Department of Labor while Clayton ran the Securities and Exchange Commission. And together, they worked very effectively to allow private equity firms to more easily access 401k funds. So traditionally, 401k fund managers have not invested in private equity firms. The two of them work to essentially insulate fund managers from liability if they ultimately decide to invest, you know, to to work with 401ks. So it's an area where I think private equity firms, advocates in government were very effective at sort of opening up new business opportunities and new areas for essentially getting money to invest with. 
Pension funds, as well as the 401k funds, represent trillions of dollars in assets. And private equity firms are not alone in trying to get a hold of those funds, but they definitely have been trying to do so. You mentioned Scalia and Clayton. So that was the Trump administration. Geithner was the Obama administration. This points out that this is not a partisan phenomenon. All administrations are vulnerable to these influences, and some of them even promote them. The failure of any repercussions or consequences after the 2008 debacle of the economy for any high-level people being held accountable for the harm done, in my opinion, contributed to the rise of fury, particularly on the right, because Obama's administration got left holding the bag, and they are the ones that did not prosecute. So the repercussions of this, not just for the economy, but for the cohesiveness of our society, is really profound and very disturbing. I wonder if you have any comments on that, Brendan Ballou. I can't speak to what decisions should or shouldn't have been made in 2008. But one of the interesting things is after the financial crisis, all of the investment banks and the large ones converted into what are called bank holding companies, which are sort of more regulated entities and in some sense became sort of less interesting. They just became more conservative institutions. And I think private equity firms sort of took up the mantle and expanded into other areas that investment banks just weren't able to do. We've already mentioned private credit. Private equity firms have also gotten very involved in insurance and are also doing things like literally buying the hedge fund operations that investment banks used to run. It's an area where sort of the regulatory pressure went down on one side of the balloon and it just popped up in another area. And I keep thinking about this quote from an analyst who said, Blackstone, the private equity firm, he says, Blackstone reminds me of Goldman Sachs a decade ago. Wherever something interesting is happening, that's where they are. And I think that plays out in things like compensation. The head of Blackstone, for instance, make 10 times as much as the head of Goldman Sachs, who I don't think is terribly underpaid. So it's certainly an area where I think the repercussions are being of the Great Recession are now playing out in the private equity world. I think to your deeper point about sort of national divisions, it's interesting in that because private equity firm leaders are often so well compensated, intentionally or not, it does contribute in some ways to growing inequality. The number of private equity executives who have over $100 million in assets, I think exceeds all other financial executives, I think all sports figures combined. So this sort of small niche of the economy is a disproportionate driver of wealth for a handful of people. Yes, and the effects are felt throughout the country. You were mentioning Shopco earlier. Shopco went bankrupt, stores closed before they closed, massive layoffs of workers. These are people who had worked for decades, maybe, in their small towns. They're unemployed, couldn't find new jobs. And what we're talking about are difficult to understand these Entities. I had a hard time reading your book, even though you write very well, Brendan, and you're very clear. These are just difficult concepts to get. So displaced individuals, their families, they are susceptible to anyone who comes along with an easy soundbite 
someone to blame for their rage, telling them, oh, it's not your fault, it's somebody's fault. Of course, they're not saying it's the fat cat on the private equity firm's fault, because that's too distant away. It's too difficult to understand. And that's what I mean when I think that the repercussions in our society, as well as our democracy, are very profound and quite worrying. Let's talk about how they get away with it. And important to the discussion are the law firms that make it possible, and in particular, Kirkland and Ellis. And among the Kirkland and Ellis people are Bill Barr, Ken Starr, Paul Clement. What role do these big law firms play in making this possible? Big law firms, I think, have really pivoted their whole business, many of them, increasingly to focus on private equity. And I spent two years working at a large law firm, and I can attest to that, just looking at the list of new clients that would come in, there would be a whole section for private equity. And when you talk about these big firms, historically, they have gotten their money through litigation, defending companies or suing other companies for various alleged wrongs or protecting against government investigations and so forth. Well, it turns out that you can often make a lot more money on the deal side of things. So helping private equity firms buy and sell other companies to such an extent that a firm like Kirkland and Ellis, I, I can't speak to their internal operations, but there's been public reporting on how they have increasingly focused to sort of manage the deals of private equity firms. I think that that plays out in that whether it's deal making or whether it's litigation, I think private equity firms have been very successful at really getting, if not the best of the best, then certainly the most expensive lawyers that are out there and some of the most prestigious. And it really has reoriented, I think, a lot of the business of law because of how much money they have in legal fees every year. One of the business models is suing their own customers. Talk about that. Yeah. So I was really interested in seeing the extent to which many private equity owned portfolio companies really focus on suing their own customers or clients or patients. We started off looking at payday lenders, which were owned by private equity firms. And I did this little comparison of looking at one payday lender who wasn't owned by a PE firm and one that was, you know, the one that wasn't owned, you look at the number of lawsuits each year, it's where they're suing somebody else. It's kind of steady. Then you look at the one that's bought by a private equity firm, and it's sort of steady. And then it gets bought by the PE firm. And suddenly, there's this huge spike in the number of lawsuits that they're involved in, which suggests that the strategy, the acquisition was to get more aggressive at hounding their own customers to try to collect money. A similar story played out in the medical debt world where Blackstone bought up a hospital in Memphis and ultimately was suing more customers than three other nearby hospitals combined. Now, ultimately, public reporting, I think, embarrassed the hospital and the private equity firm into stopping that tactic. But it suggests that going back to the beginning of our conversation, in a world where you are really owning these companies just for a few years – Oftentimes, you just have a sort of short-term perspective where it might be okay to burn bridges with your customers or take an adversarial approach with your patients because you don't really have to worry about the long-term consequences necessarily. Speak about the 
rise of the forced arbitration versus the private equity's ability to use the full force of the government to garnish wages and bank accounts. Yeah. So to go back to the payday lender example, Mariner Finance, which is an installment lender that's owned by the private equity firm Warburg Pincus, had this business model of essentially mailing people checks. And you would get the check and you would cash it. And by cashing it, you would enter into a contract with Mariner. And what happened is if you enter into the contract, well, there's a clause in it that says that you have to enter into forced arbitration if you you know, ultimately want to sue the payday lender. But interestingly enough, Mariner wasn't bound by the same obligation. So if they wanted to sue a customer, they could do so through the state or federal court system. And that matters because the lender can then get a judgment that would allow them to serve it on a bank and then the bank could directly garnish the borrower's wages. And, you know, you see the use of arbitration agreements sort of across industries where private equity firms are active. Nursing homes, for instance, that are owned by private equity firms, there's reporting about how they often relied on forced arbitration agreements. And then when the Obama administration attempted to essentially ban those, it was enjoined through an action by a nursing home consortium that was in part run by private equity executives and their portfolio company executives. There's really interesting pushback in trying to think of new ways that ordinary customers and patients can get around forced arbitration. But I have to say that I think the defense bar has been extremely aggressive and extremely successful at making sure that customers are stuck with these arbitration agreements. And when you say the defense bar, you mean the defense bar for the private equity firms. And their portfolio companies. Right. Now, when you say that they send out checks, you talk about the case of Leticia Castellano. She didn't ask for this check. They sent it to her. Very briefly explain her case. Yeah. So it was a case where she was sent a check. She had not apparently asked for it. She needed the money, I believe, as was alleged in a subsequent lawsuit. She just made $800 a month. So she was not a prosperous person, probably needed the money. Ultimately, she called Mariner to try to renegotiate her terms, but was ultimately convinced to take on a subsequent loan, most of which, as I recall, as was alleged at least, did not actually go to her, but was used for sort of various insurance, paying down the principal on the previous loan and so forth. Ultimately, she sued Mariner, but because of the exact reason that we were talking about earlier, she was prohibited from pursuing her case in federal court, and it was knocked into arbitration, and the outcome of which ultimately was never known, which gets to sort of a general problem that I think plaintiffs experience with the arbitration system, which is it's a very opaque secretive process. And even if one customer wins, you don't necessarily develop a body of case law that future customers can rely upon. So it sort of runs contrary to a lot of the principles that make our legal system work to the extent it does. So that was Mariner Finance, and that's a subsidiary of Warburg Pincus, whose president is former Secretary of Treasury's Timothy Geithner. Privatizing of the public sector, it deserves far more time than we'll be able to give it. But I found especially disturbing the privatization of 911 call centers. Very briefly talk about that, just as an example of what can go wrong. 
911 calls do need to get routed somewhere, and companies often provide those routing solutions. Ultimately, a private equity firm bought up one 911 routing company, what was ultimately named Intrato. It seems that they had a policy or a practice of slashing jobs because when they bought it, it had a certain number of customers. When they sold it, their public reporting was was significantly smaller. And they had a series of essentially crises in their operation of the 911 services to such an extent that I believe the entire state of Oregon was without 911 services for half an hour or so. And if you've ever been in an emergency, half an hour can mean quite a bit. The challenge that they had is there sort of continued to be these rolling crises year after year. And they would have to pay minor fees to the government and so forth. But there wasn't any systematic solution to the crisis of their operation. So I think it's one area where private equity ownership potentially forced a short-term perspective that cut into really critical services that people needed. You write that in 2006, when they bought it up, there were 29,000 employees. And by 2016, it was down to fewer than 11,000. Brendan, we're just about out of time, and we've totally neglected your section about what can be done. I want you to select one or two to share with our listeners. Ultimately, it goes back to the problems we were talking about at the beginning, you know, a focus on short-termism, reliance on debt and fees, and insulation from liability. Congress can address this, but so can state and localities, you know, requiring private equity firms to take responsibility for actions of companies that are bought in their jurisdictions. If you solve those three problems, private equity can be made a productive part of society. You know, as long as we need to hire new people and build new factories, there's a role for investment to play. We just need to change the incentives of private equity firms to think for the long term and take responsibility for their actions. You talk about the impact of activism on you personally. Why don't you share with us about that? Because sometimes people wonder, what difference can I make? I've worked in the Department of Justice for several years now. I was there ultimately during the last administration in the National Security Division as the travel ban was being promulgated. It's no secret I opposed it and many other people did in government. I ultimately chose to leave for a number of years. I can say that protest really does make a difference for people in government when you know that people outside really believe that you're arguing for the right cause. It can empower you. It can empower you in meetings. It can empower you in arguments and really strengthen voices within the government. So I just tell people, don't underestimate your own influence. When you make your voice heard on these sorts of things, it can really affect people that are trying to do the right thing. Brendan Ballou, there's so much more in your book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, that we weren't able to get to. But I very much appreciate the work that you put into making this book and for sharing some of your thoughts with us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for, for such detailed questions. It's clear you really read the thing. It, it means a lot. 
You have just heard a conversation with Brendan Ballou about his book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, published by Public Affairs Books. He writes in the section called What We Must Do, quote, Let me speak personally for a moment. My first job in the Department of Justice was in the National Security Division, and specifically in the office that advised the White House on the legality and advisability of various national security policies. I held that job at the tail end of the Obama administration and into the Trump administration. For several months, my office was intimately involved in debates over the Trump administration's travel bans, which barred transit from several majority Muslim nations. It was a horrifying experience, and for several months, in meetings and memos, I and others tried to stop the various iterations of the ban from being issued or to have countries taken off the list. I was obviously unsuccessful in that effort and left the office shortly after the ban was issued, which the Supreme Court subsequently upheld. Nevertheless, throughout that process, I remember feeling strengthened knowing that my objections were supported by people, millions of people, outside the Department of Justice. The literal protests in the street gave me, a junior lawyer in a quiet office, the strength to make my complaint to more senior and powerful people, all of which is to say that protest has an effect. In big departments and agencies, it can give career staff the courage to argue their points. In courts, it can alter and expand what judges and clerks consider possible options. The effects of protests might not always be visible, the strand connecting outburst and action not always clear, but I can say that they have an effect because they had an effect on me. Those were the words of Brendan Ballou. Looking ahead, perhaps you've heard about the upcoming trial in the case of Held v. the State of Montana, in which Ricky Held, in a group of 16 youth plaintiffs, is suing the State of Montana for not providing adequate safeguards to their environment and their futures regarding fossil fuels. It's the first in a series of suits brought by young people to actually make it to trial because the Montana State Constitution, as revised 50 years ago in 1972 enumerates as an inalienable right in Article 2 declarations of rights a clean and healthful environment and the rights of pursuing life's basic necessities, enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and seeking their safety, health, and happiness in all lawful ways. In enjoying these rights, all persons recognize corresponding responding responsibilities, end of that quote. And then in Article 9, Environment and Natural Resources, Section 1, Protection and Improvement, 1. The state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. 2. The legislature shall provide for the administration and enforcement of this duty. And 3. The legislature shall provide adequate remedies for the protection of the environmental life support system from degradations and provide adequate remedies to prevent unreasonable depletion and degradation of natural resources. End of the quote. 
You see, the Montana Constitution affords rights greater than most state constitutions or the U.S. Constitution, and these young plaintiffs intend that their rights be enforced as required by this Constitution. The trial is scheduled to begin this Monday, June 12, 2023, in Judge Kathy Seeley's Montana First District Court in Helena, Montana, and it's scheduled to continue 9 to 5 until Friday, June 23rd. It is my intention to record the trial in its entirety and post daily synopses each following day. This is a monumental task for one person to attempt, but as far as I can tell, there's no one else even attempting to do it. And this leads me to another exhortation to you to support community radio. Not that any money you pledge will come to me. It doesn't, and it never has. But as Brendan Ballou wrote about the nature of support, it really does help me as I work endless hours producing informative, timely radio programs in service of social, environmental, and political justice. And I suppose these days I should add spiritual justice to know that you listeners not only listen, but do your part to contribute to the sustenance of such efforts. And so I again ask that you do help with the financial necessities of keeping local, and these days it's global, community radio strong and vibrant. You can phone during business hours at 707-895-2324 or go to kzyx.org anytime. Not only does it help our community, but it really does help us radio host producers in our work. And for this, we thank you. Everybody knows.